0: See, from the the, the time that Jesus called his first disciples, he said, follow me and I will make you fish for people. And he still calls disciples like you and me today. How different this world might look if each of us took responsibility for one person, just one life, and prayed expectantly that God would do a work in them, that God would open doors for us to have spiritual conversations with them. Last week, we talked about the importance of one. We looked at Luke chapter 15, uh, where, where Jesus uh, shares the parable of the lost sheep. Just as the shepherd who had 100 sheep, he cared so much about that lost sheep that he would leave the 99 and go after it. God cares about each and every lost soul. The religious leaders of the day, they, 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 uh, they, they were seeing Jesus and they were seeing them just as Sinners. That Jesus was was eating and welcoming sinners, hanging out. And sure, they were sinners. But God saw them as his beloved children, his creation. And just as our, our God doesn't change, his position toward each and every person hasn't changed. He sees these people as lost and as separated from him. And so each and every person that we encounter is a divine appointment, Each and every person that we encounter is dearly loved as God's special creation, each soul a masterpiece in its own right, each person given value beyond measure. God values each one so much that he holds nothing back. He not only sent his his own beloved son, Jesus Christ, to live and die for us, but he also sends out his beloved children, you and I, the church. To continue the mission because every life matters. Today we're going to continue our series on who's your one, but we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. We talked about salvation. We talk about salvation often. We talk about being saved and, and sure, uh, that is important we pray that people would be saved. I mean right now in America, right now in America, there are 328 million people, people, over 246 million in America lost. And sure, we pray that each one would be saved. but what does that really mean? What does it really mean that they would be saved? We throw around words like salvation. We talk of being saved, but we don't always think about what we're actually saying. Those who maybe didn't grow up in the church, maybe you're like, man, I don't know that vernacular. I'm not sure what that means. What are you saved from? What does this all really mean? See, when we talk to others about life in Christ, especially when we share with unbelievers, we usually like to talk about how one gets saved way more than we talk about what one gets saved from. And yet everybody knows that it's impossible to be saved from nothing. It just just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And so today we're going to talk about something that might make some feel uncomfortable or awkward. And I'm sure that it's only made more awkward by the fact that we just don't ever talk about it. Most churches don't. See, when we are saved, we are saved from sin and death, yes. But ultimately, we are saved from hell ultimately we're saved from hell. Eternity separated from God. And so today we're going to gain some eternal perspective by looking at one of the only passages in scripture that gives us a glimpse of hell. If you have your Bible with you today, I'm going to ask that you please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke chapter 16. If you use your smartphone, uh, you can find all the scripture and notes from today uh, under the events tab in the UVersion Bible app. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 16 and we're going to begin in verse 19 this morning. Luke 16, 19. Please follow along as I read the word of God aloud. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. Amen. You may remember last week, we were in Luke chapter 15, just one chapter earlier than this. The Pharisees, they were angry with Jesus. They were like, why does this man who claims to be what he claims to be eating with sinners? We said last week that the Pharisees, they, they just assumed, they, they believed that sinners would just be destroyed, but instead... Jesus responds with these three parables in Luke chapter 15. He shares the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable of the lost son as we've come to reference them. However, Jesus has no intent on stopping giving the Pharisees the education of their lives. Luke chapter 16 begins with Jesus calling out the Pharisees for their love of money and their self-righteous attitudes. He shares with them the parable of the shrewd manager, which ends with that famous verse No one can serve two masters. Either you will love the one, or either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus follows this up by saying to them, You are the ones. You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. See, it's only after a brief four-verse intermission that Jesus picks up in the passage of Scripture that we have just read. Jesus tells of a rich man whom he doesn't name and a beggar whom he does name called Lazarus. In case you were wondering, this is not the same Lazarus that Jesus raises from the dead, the brother of Mary and Martha. However, this Lazarus has a special place in Scripture because in all the stories that Jesus tells, this is the only man given a name. And so we're told that the rich man, he was dressed in purple, the color of royalty, and fine linen, and lived in luxury every day. He was no stranger to extravagance. And then on the other hand, We have Lazarus, the complete opposite. He's a beggar who sits outside of the rich man's gate. He has nothing except for the sores that cover his body. He's hideous. Even the dogs, they come and lick his sores. He sits outside the rich man's house looking for, longing for food that might fall from the rich man's table. I know that may si- seem like a weird statement in today's culture. However, in biblical times, food was eaten with the hands. And if you were in a very wealthy house, you would clean your hands by taking a chunk of bread and wiping your fingers on the bread and then discarding it. They would throw the bread out with the trash. And this, this is what Lazarus is waiting for the trash. He's waiting for the trash to find some food. Some have said that death is the great equalizer. It comes to us all. And as we see in verses 22 and 23, they both die. But surprisingly, the rich man, and I'm sure to the Pharisees as well, the rich man they and Lazarus end up in two different places. They expected it to be reversed, but instead, Lazarus ends up by Abraham's side, and the rich man ends up in torment. There are a few things I want us to see today, and the first one is this, is that eternity awaits everyone. Everyone. Eternity awaits everyone. This life is not all there is. The rich man lived his life of luxury and extravagance, giving no thought to the afterlife, not a care in the world for eternal things. And he is somehow surprised to find himself in torment. Look at verse 23, beginning there it says, In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he calls him, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue, because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replies, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you're in agony there. The rich man is a Jew. That's what's so crazy about this story. The rich man is a Jew. He calls Abraham Father Abraham. He is a Jew on the outside, but on the inside, his heart is all wrong. On the inside, his heart is all wrong. Some might say that this story is about money and possessions. It's not. It's not. The rich man didn't go to hell because he was rich any more than Lazarus went to heaven because he was poor. See, one of them clearly cared about the things of God and the other did not. God looks at the heart. The things that the rich man lived for were far from God, but that's all he seemed to care about. He wanted to be happy. He wanted to be successful. He wanted an easy life, and he got it. He got it, but he got it at the at the wrong time. And he got it in the wrong ways. And he got it by doing the wrong things. See, Satan wants you and I to believe. Satan wants us to believe that what we see is all there really is. What we experience on this plane is all that there is, that this life is it. This life is it. He doesn't want you to think about eternity. That's one of the major differences between God and Satan. God always wants you to think about eternity. He wants you to think about eternity all the time. That's when we're going to be with him, right? He wants us to live this life in light of eternity, and Satan wants us to think that this life is all there is. Satan wants you to think, man, there's no heaven, there's no hell. If there is, then you can worry about it later. Certainly push it off. You can think about that later. This life is what's most important. What's happening right now, what's right in front of you, is of the utmost importance. This minute triumphs everything, trumps everything else. But because of this, we are lulled into a sleep. We are lulled into a sleep. We see the good things of this world. We see all the things that this world has to offer, and we want all the stuff. And in doing so, we are gently rocked to sleep. We lose our sense of urgency. We become complacent. We lose our sense of purpose. Sure, we didn't intend to end up in this state. How do we get here? Little by little, step by step choice by choice, each decision leading us closer, each action leading us closer. Sure, we want to be closer to God. We want more fellowship with Him. We want to to be more in His presence, and instead, each decision is leading us further away from who we are called to be, further away from the mission, further away from His presence. See, because eternity awaits everyone, and we don't know when that time will begin for anyone, I mean, for some of it, it could be today, it could be tomorrow, next month, next year, 10 years, 30 years, we just don't know. But because we don't know how long, we don't know how long we might be here or how long they might be here, then we must have a sense of urgency. The gospel isn't something we can just get around to. The gospel isn't something we can just get around to. I mean, you heard me say that America alone, 328 million people, every one of those 328 million people are destined for eternity. They are eternal beings in that sense. They will spend, every single one, 328 million people will spend eternity somewhere. Now consider there's 246 million lost souls, they too will spend eternity somewhere. According to the CDC, in the U.S., there were over 2.8 million deaths in 2017. Okay? 2.8 million deaths in the United States in 2017. That's one person heading into eternity, wherever it may be, one person heading into eternity every 11 seconds. If those numbers hold true for today, by the time this message ends, over 200 people will have crossed over from this life into the afterlife. They will have headed into eternity in just the time that I have been talking. On a global scale, the numbers are even worse. When you consider the entire world, there's about 108 deaths a minute. That's almost two people every second. We must have a sense of urgency because eternity awaits. Everyone that we encounter today is headed towards a destination. This earth ain't it. Everyone has an eternity ahead of them. They have a ticket. They have a boarding pass for their destination. It's either heaven or hell. There are no other options. There is no annihilation of the soul where just one ceases to exist. They go into the ground. Everything's dark. It just doesn't happen like that. There is heaven. There is hell. And more often than not, the destination is hell. The next thing we need to see today is that hell is real. Hell is real. If Satan can't get eternity out of your mind, then maybe, maybe he can get you to believe that hell isn't real. That a loving God wouldn't really send people to such a place. Hear me, friends, they send themselves there. A holy God is a just God. People who want separation from him will ultimately get it. For those who say, my will be done, when their time is done on this earth, God will say, your will be done. Satan wants us to believe that hell is not real. And quite frankly, I think he's doing a pretty good job of it. He's doing a pretty good job of it. Studies have been done each and every year, and the number of those who believe in the existence of hell, the number decreases each year. As if by not believing in it would somehow make it less of a reality. For those of us who believe, believe that hell is real, satanly, Satan certainly has us convinced that talking about it is wrong. It's wrong. It's judgmental. It is certainly condemning. So, we as Christians, we don't talk about it very much. We talk about salvation, but as I said earlier, salvation from what? Salvation from the place that shall not be named. But this isn't fiction. Hell is real. So if Satan can't make us believe that hell isn't real, then his next attempt is to convince you that hell is a place reserved only for the worst of the worst. Satan wants you and I to believe that most people are going to heaven. Let's face it, if you interviewed people in your life today, if you were to talk to those who are who are in your life today, most of them would say, Well, absolutely, I think I'm I'm hopefully going to heaven. I think I'd make the cut. Usually they say something like that. I found a study where people were asked in the United States where they believed they were going, whether they were going to heaven or hell. And for every person, for every one person who believes that they're going to hell, there are 120 people who believe that they're going to heaven. 120 to one. What does that tell us? That many Many people are greatly deceived. A lot of people think that heaven is our default destination, that somehow we are born into it. But no, we, it's not. How do we know that? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. See, there's a wide gate and a broad road. It leads to destruction. Many are going to enter through it. This wide gate and broad road can accommodate a whole lot of people. It gets a lot of traffic. Many go there. In contrast, though, there is a small gate and a narrow road, and this is the one that leads to life. But Jesus tells us only a few find it. Only a few in comparison to many. The majority of people that you and I encounter in the world today are headed towards death and destruction. They're headed towards pain and suffering. They're headed towards a Christless eternity. Because of sin and the effects of sin on the world and the effects of sin on us, hell is our default destination unless... Unless the goodness of God works in our life, until we realize and accept the grace, and until we accept the beauty and the love of God's sinless Son, Jesus Christ, that too is our destiny. Unless, unless. See, the rich man, he's in pain and he's in torment, and he just wants a drink of water, but there's no relief. There's no peace. There is only despair and need. Abraham tells the rich man that there is no way to cross over to there. You can't come over here. We can't come over there. There is no way. There is a chasm. There is a divide. There is no such thing. I mean, get this from this passage. There is no such thing as some sort of intermediary. There's no such thing as as purgatory. There is only heaven and there is hell. Once you're there, you're there. It's too late. What's done is done. And so the rich man, he has a request. He has a request to Abraham. Abraham, please, I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. Send him to my family. I got five brothers. Let him, let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He knows that there's no hope for him, but there is still hope for his brothers. The rich man knows that his brothers must repent. He he gets it. He gets it. Repentance, that's it. That's it. And so out of desperation he says, "Abraham, go. Go to my brothers so that they might intervene that they would he would stop them in their tracks and tell them repent, turn around, go the other way. Don't end up here." But Abraham replies, "They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them." He says, no, but you don't get it, Abraham. I mean, they're not going to listen to him. You've got you to send somebody. Send somebody from beyond the grave. Uh, resurrect somebody and, and send them there. Jesus is telling the story. He, he's totally talking about himself. But Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man knows that his fate is irreversible. He knows that he is stuck here in this place of pain and sadness and isolation and he just wants his brothers to turn around to change their behavior, to repent and that they won't experience the same fate as him. See, because hell is real and because eternity is a long time, hell is terrible and eternity is forever, We must weigh our response towards others in light of eternity. In light of eternity, the most loving thing we can do is to share the good news of Jesus Christ. In light of eternity, our loving response is to share Christ. See, many people have confessed that they're afraid to share Jesus with others because they're afraid of what it might do to the relationship they have with that person. They're afraid that they might lose their friendship. Friends, in light of eternity, I don't know how one could ever say that. Who knows what's going to happen today or tomorrow or the next, w- the next week or the next month or year, whatever. There are no guarantees in this life. You and I may be on the cusp of losing our friend forever. Forever. And we are concerned about what? Some social awkwardness, perhaps. For us not to share Jesus Christ, for us not to articulate those life-saving words to that person would frankly just be unloving. Just as an object will stay at rest, an object at rest will stay at rest, a person far from God will remain far from God unless brought to him. There are people in your life and in my life, maybe it's a coworker or a friend, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's somebody you sit next to at the practices or the ball games or the concerts or the plays. They may not be a family member. They they may, uh, but there are unbelievers in your life and in my life with whom we come in contact with daily, regularly. We should be compelled out of love and concern to approach them without delay. We shouldn't be able to rest. How can I rest? How can we just go on with life knowing that there is someone we love, someone who God loves, heading into a Christless eternity? Sure, sharing your faith could ruffle feathers. Sharing your faith is a risk. But isn't it a risk worth taking? If you love them at all, won't you care where they spend eternity? I don't know why we can't say that to people. I care where you're spending eternity. I care about you enough. See, we have this picture of hell. Do do I want anyone I know to go there? I don't. Charles Spurgeon says this, If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let no one go there unwarned or unprayed for. Author Mark Cahill He shares a story in his book, One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. He says that a few years ago, one of his high school buddies told him over dinner, he said, you are the only friend I have who cares where my soul is going to spend eternity. What an indictment. There are people all around us who claim to be Christian So many that some are willing to claim that the United States is a Christian nation. And yet, only one person in this guy's life cared about where he was going to spend the afterlife. This should be both troubling and motivating to us all. If indeed the gospel is not being lived out and shared as it should, which I think we can all agree that it's probably not, then we must recognize that God has placed each of us. God has placed you exactly where you need to be in your job, in your community each of us in the setting that we are in for specific purposes. You may very well be the only person who cares where your coworker is going to spend eternity. You may be the only person who can speak into your family member's life. You may be the only person who can articulate that gospel to your friend. We can come up with all the excuses as to why we haven't and why we shouldn't, but ultimately it comes down to love. Do we love others enough to tell them the truth? Or are we putting ourselves and our own comfort ahead of the salvation of someone else? Do we love them enough to share Christ with them? what kind of friend would I be if I didn't? DJ Higgins wrote a poem years ago. And I'd just like to read a few stanzas of it before we close today. It reads this. My friend, I stand in judgment now. And feel that you're to blame somehow. On earth I walked with you day by day, and never did you point the way. You knew the Lord in truth and glory, but never did you tell the story. My knowledge then was very dim, and you could have led me safe to him. Though we live together here on earth, you never told me of the second birth. And now I stand this day condemned because you failed to mention him. You taught me many things, that's true. I called you friend and trusted you. But I learn now that it's too late. And you could have kept me from this fate. I don't want anyone, I don't want anyone in my life, I don't want anyone ever to say, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me? If we believe that eternity awaits everyone, every single person, and if we believe that hell is as real and as terrible as it is, then we must be willing to pay the cost and overcome any obstacle for the sake of the one. Each one matters. Let us pray. God, we thank you for salvation. We thank you that it's only because of you, that it's not by works, but it's through grace and faith in you that we are saved. God, we thank you for making a way for us But God, I pray right now that the church would come alive, that every disciple, every follower of you, Christ, would not waste another moment. Eternity is too long. Time on this earth is too short. Salvation is too important. God, help us. Give us wisdom. Give us the words to speak your message. Help us not to to get distracted by all of the other things of this world. Give us focus. Give us your eyes. Give us your heart that we might respond in love and compassion to each and every heart, each and every mind, each and every soul that we see. To you, God, be the glory. Equip us, empower us to go. We thank you, God, that we are your ambassadors, that we are your representatives in this world. May we love as you love, care as you care. Holy Spirit lead us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.